0: Welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. Today on the show, Bob is speaking with Sam Palazzolo. You're used to wearing six, seven, eight hats in any given moment as a a solopreneur. And how do you take one of those hats off and with comfort delegate to another individual? It's giving up control. Uncomfortable, right? But you've got to be able to delegate, and then you've got to be able to hold the people that you delegate the assignments to accountable.
1: Hi there, and welcome back to Amplify, the Personal Brand Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Bob Gentle, and every Monday I'm joined by amazing people who share what makes their business work. If you're new, then take a second to subscribe through your player app. And while you're listening, join our Facebook community. Just visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders and you'll be taken right there. Hi there and welcome to Amplify, the personal brand entrepreneur show. My name is Bob Gentle and every week I'm joined by incredible people who share what makes their business work. If you're new to the show, take a second right now to subscribe in your player. If you're using Apple podcasts, just a quick reminder, hit the new follow button in the top right hand corner. That way you will actually get notifications when I post new episodes, which is every single Monday. Before I jump into introducing this week's guest, once again, I have a new thing. After nearly 200 of these interviews, I've discovered a thing or two. And the most important thing is success leaves clues. So, I have put together the Amplify Personal Brand Success Roadmap, really distilling probably the important milestones or waypoints that it jumped out to me as common to pretty much every single successful guest I've had. So that's my gift to you completely free. Head over to amplifymeagency forward slash roadmap and grab your copy of the Personal Brand Business Blueprint. Everything you need to start, scale, or just fix your expert business. So let's get into it. This week, I have living proof that what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. This week, my guest is Sam Palazzo. Sam, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me.
1: So I have so much to talk to about you, Sam. So for those who don't know you, why don't you start just by telling us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what it is you actually do.
0: Sure. I'll uh, I'll give you a 30,000 foot overview. We can dig down to treetop level or root level during our conversation. But I spent about 20 years in the automotive industry doing everything from working manufacturing, wholesale distribution, and ultimately retail. Partly that experience to go into big consulting. I've worked with Deloitte as well as Aeon's Change Management Group. Um, had my own consultancy and I Also was working with a CEO therein where I had grown that firm from myself, single shingle to 20 folks. we were working on projects domestically in the U.S. as well as internationally abroad. Um, And one of the CEOs I worked with asked one day if I could hear him out on a tech startup idea he had. This is in 2010. Uh, I said, sure, I'll, I'll help any way I can, which is my nature. Uh, we got together he shared with me what it was that he was doing i said it sounds amazing how can i help how can i support and he said i'm glad you like it i'd like you to help me run it so uh, i dove headfirst into a tech startup we raised eight million dollars straight out of the chute, probably six million too much Uh, but at the uh, and i helped implement and execute the sales blueprint We grew one of those legendary hockey stick sales revenue graphs, Uh, had a couple of private equity firms that were interested in us at the 18 month mark, uh, one of which had a similar holding, but it was a non-tech offering. And they're the ones who ultimately acquired us at the 22 month mark, I off ramped at 24. And that's where I started Tip of the Spear Ventures, which is where I'm at today. Uh, Tip is a unique private equity firm. We have two sides of the house. One still is very much a consultancy. So I hark back to my, my days. I love working with organizational leaders to help them overcome their challenges. The other side is very much a venture side of the house uh, where we help some early stage entrepreneurs post revenue, about a million dollars, but we help them kind of grow and scale their businesses. And in 2017, I've, I've always taught at the, edu- or at the higher ed level since 2008. I'm an adjunct faculty member at UNLV, where I teach an exec ed course based on my fifth book, which was published in 2018 called "The uh, Leading at the Tip of the Spear, the Leader. And uh, I formed in 2017 a 501c3 nonprofit that provides executive education. It's called the Javelin Institute. So that's a high-level overview, Bob, of, of wh- who I am and... You're right. We're a Nevada corporation based on Las Vegas, Nevada. uh, And that's me at a high level.
1: I think anybody listening will be possibly scratching their head thinking, why is Bob speaking to Sam? And I think they would be quite right to say so because a lot of my guests, they are what you would consider the sort of micro business, the, the very small business, the single consultant, single creator. A venture capitalist would not normally be the kind of person that I'm speaking to. But when I looked at your background, when I looked at the kind of businesses you work with and when I looked at how you work with them and how you run your own business, you are essentially a personal brand entrepreneur and you're simply doing it in a slightly different lane to a lot of my my guests. But for me, it's highly relevant because I've been thinking quite a lot recently about that there is a world in which personal brand it's very well known. Everybody knows about it. And it's particularly the online entrepreneur, people like that. But when I look at the traditional business community, the sort of the brick and mortar or the startup, it's something that they're less familiar with. And actually, it's still fundamentally important to them. And I thought you would be a really interesting people to speak to about that particularly. And then there are a few other places that I would like to go. But I guess where I would like to Start is if you were to maybe di- describe what are the kind of businesses that you are typically working with.
0: Yeah, so so we're pretty industry agnostic. You know, I I come from the tech space, so technology, whether hardware or software oriented, that's a, a certainly a sweet spot. But you know, our experience has run the gamut. We've worked manufacturing. We've worked construction. Uh, we've worked large organizations, small, north, south, east, west, it, it, It's pretty agnostic. Uh, I'll, maybe, maybe this is where you're going with the question because it, it kind of is, you know, I want to say, a reminder for what it is how you started off the podcast, and that is that success leave clues, right? There are certain skill sets and certain behaviors that leaders have that, regardless of the industry that they participate in, whether they're leading themselves or they're leading a team of hundreds or thousands, um, the success, I want to say, ingredients are always the same.
1: Those success ingredients, have you ever gone to the extent of actually codifying that in terms of, well, here they are, ABC, roadmap, framework, anything like that? Or is it something that's much more almost like a creative palette that you can see where there are gaps intuitively or instinctively?
0: No, yeah, of course we have. Um, <laughs> this is one of those things where the 501c3 that I mentioned provides executive education. And, and one of the things that we do from an exec ed perspective is we provide leadership development as well as executive coaching. So leadership development in the form of either workshops, webinars, either on site or virtual, those types of things. But I'm an accountant by training, go figure, Bob. And one of the things that I'm always looking at is, you know, what are the metrics or what are the key performance indicators that we're going to measure against? You know, typically we see in that, that exec ed space that there's not exactly a clear tie back to the, the ROI, if you will, the return on investment, what, what it is that is making someone get better. Uh, and primarily because there's a lot of, I think, touchy-feely, you know, how it is that you think and how it is that you feel will make you a better leader. Uh, I'm looking at it from the, how do we quantify that? And, and most importantly, what results, when we work together, are you able to put up on the scoreboard of leadership that show that you're actually improving? So that's, that's where it is that I come from. When, when we drive forward with those types of initiatives, right?
1: So when you're looking at a leadership scoreboard, for example, to be super crude, leadership is often quite an intangible. But if you're gonna have a scoreboard, you're gonna to have to have tangibles. So what kind of things would typically be going up on that scoreboard?
0: Yeah, these are, these are specific behaviors that leaders want to improve in. But typically, the want might not equate with the have to or should. So in other words, sometimes leaders will pick some items that might not necessarily, from a behavioral perspective, be able to really drive them forward faster. But they'll want to work on them because from their perspective, they view them as this is something that is clearly within uh, my skill set or I can improve on easily and I can show some results quickly. Uh, So one of the things from an assessment perspective, we obviously ask the individual to rank themselves in a behavioral assessment. But then we almost, we do a 360 degree where we'll ask their stakeholders. So not only their superiors, subordinates, but their peers, what is it that they can improve on uh, and rank them as well. And so it kind of provides us with a nice insight into or a line in the sand regarding this is where the candidate or the individual perceives themselves to be. This is where everybody else is saying that they're at. And then we can identify what are the specific behaviors then. Maybe, maybe it's a gap analysis. Candidate rank themselves really high. Stakeholders rank themselves really low. Those types of gaps, big blank spaces, kind of drop themselves out as okay this is where we should really be focused and as I started out saying those types of things Bob typically won't be consistent with if we had only surveyed the leader where it is that they would want to focus right
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense this is a question that for me has become very pertinent recently and it's something that you know life throws you themes from time to time you Mm -hmm. see the same thing coming up again and again for me this is very now and it's I work with a lot of business owners and I see a lot of business owners this this is something I've seen a lot it's only really become conscious recently where they've been very successful and they've been very successful because they've built a high profile they're really well known everybody knows them they're charismatic and that's great it works brilliantly but their business grows to the point where they decide to scale it up and they can scale it up in a small way. They can bring in investment, scale it up in a big way, but there comes a point at which they decide, okay, I've built the business through my personal brand. I got it so far, but that's not going to carry me forward. I need to, I need the team to carry the strain. I want the corporate brand to jump out in front and let me fade into the background. And they try that and then they wonder why it didn't work. They wonder why the business seems to falter. It, it stops growing. And it's it's largely because they, their personal brand, was the most successful ingredient in it because they were charismatic and magnetic. So how can we as smaller businesses, personal brand entrepreneurs, expert business owners, how can we take what got us to this point of success and then scale up whilst retaining that central value, but in such a way that we can still get our time back. If you see what I mean?
0: No, I sure do. I think this is the, this is the leader dilemma, right? Our our leadership challenge. And I, I think one of the, one of the gentlemen I had the opportunity to do some work with was Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall wrote the book, Uh, What got you here won't get you there. Uh, Marshall's the executive coach to the Fortune 100. And, you know, I I think it's one of those things where as a leader, you're going to experience certain revenue plateaus where your skill set is going to be challenged in a different and new way, even though it's just a different revenue. Stream. So typically we'll see those revenue plateaus uh, $1 million, $10 million, $25 million, so on and so forth. But at each one of those plateaus, Bob, there's a different need or a different skill set that needs to be exhibited by the leader. Typically it comes back to you know, you can't be everywhere simultaneously or all the time as the leader. So Very much who it is that you surround yourself with, their skill set, their drive, and your ability as the leader to delegate and hold them accountable. Those two keys, regardless of which plateau, play themselves out time and time again for the leaders that I work with. You know, the ability to delegate or to give up control, if you can imagine... You you know most of the folks that might be listening to the podcast they might be just like I was where single shingle running my own consultancy, uh, looking to grow in both staff as well as conquest for clients, you know because the the bigger you are supposedly the better off you'll become, um, and so you've got to surround yourself with that A plus talent but then you've also you're used to wearing, six seven eight hats in any given moment as a a solopreneur and how do you take one of those hats off and with comfort, delegate to another individual. It's giving up control. It's extremely uncomfortable, right? Um, But you've got to be able to delegate. And then you've got to be able to hold the people that you delegate the assignments to accountable and I'm not talking a heavy-handed type of methodology when expectations do or results don't produce the same quality level that you do. Um, It's how do you work with people when you maybe didn't communicate as clearly in your mind, you know how to do it, but delegating requires clear communication so that not only you have good understanding of what you want done, but most importantly, the individual you're delegating to, they understand what you wanna have done. And you also need to have the conversation, you might as well talk it out, regarding how it is that you're gonna hold them accountable. Uh, Because if you're on one accountability track and they're on the other accountability track, you're not on the same track, you're not on the same page. Uh, But so, great question you know, it's almost, again, you know, success leaves clues what it is that we see regardless of the revenue plateau that a leader is challenged with as they grow their organization, their ability to delegate and hold folks accountable. Those are two key
1: areas. There was another thing that popped into my head as you were talking there. This is another area that I see again and again in businesses. And listeners will be familiar with me talking about this I had a guest on the show called it's terrible I can't remember but she made soap and your response soap home-based business yeah let's okay next it's the kind of thing people need do when they need to make a buck it's farmer's market type stuff but the the lady who ran this soap business turned it into a 21 million dollar a year business from making it on her kitchen table in a very short space of time. And something she said when I asked her about this, I said, why is it, you have all these people who try to do your business and they maybe make a few hundred dollars and you think, well, that was an expensive waste of time, but you turned it into this business. What was the difference? And her response to me was your business will only grow when you grow. You have to take on personal development and your self leadership. And I look at a lot of business owners when they fail to grow and it's, they try everything other than taking on their own growth. What is the difference between those people who come to you in the Javelin Institute, for example, and those who you see trying everything other than looking inside?
0: Yeah, I think that sometimes uh, the, the best leaders are much more introspective than they are looking outside of themselves for what it is that they can do. You know, a leader that's in touch with themselves, knows what their shortcomings are, and more importantly can operate towards their strengths, they're the ones that are going to succeed the majority of the time. Uh, When I was with Toyota Lexus, we were early pioneers with Marcus Buckingham and the Gallup organization right around the time that they were launching their Strength Finder. And Marcus had something very interesting that he shared with us that were on the team at Toyota Lexus regarding how we'll want to approach this whole strength versus weakness moment. And it was the following, that if you focus on your strengths and really fine tune them, hone those strengths, your weaknesses essentially become irrelevant. In other words, there's this common misperception, Bob, that the little train that could, can go and do it. <laughs> and in Marcus's perspective, the little train that could, shouldn't. It's just a stay in the <laughs> depot. And we should let the big trains that are pulling heavy loads, which is what trains do, we should let them do that type of job. A little train is probably good at doing some things around the depot. Maybe moving a single car or a single train uh, you know, car over to another line and connecting it there. Uh, the big trains should handle the big loads. The little trains should know what it is that they're good at from a strength perspective and operate within their lane. Uh, I think is the modern popular phrase. So, so that that's one example. But it's always an introspective: what am I good at? How can I get better at it? The things that I'm not so good at. I'm not saying to stop working on them, but find that A-plus talent who is great at that. Maybe that's their strength, is a better strategy. And the thing that I'm always challenging myself and my team with is there's probably a dollar revenue that's expected that you perform at, (laughs) a dollar per hour. And if you can put that dollar per hour price tag on yourself, is the next hour of your work product going to achieve that? So, in other words, you know, if you're if you're a, a mid-level executive or a solopreneur, you probably have a revenue target, right? From your business plan of what it is that you want to achieve for the year. You probably have broken it down into a monthly type of a revenue target and then a, a daily therein. And within that structure, there's the opportunity to say, you know what, the next hour. I'm going to focus on my $250 per hour type of revenue production. And if it's not at that $250 per hour revenue production, maybe there's somebody out there that's better at it. You know, and this is where, and I know what it's like having, you know, if you're out there and you're a solopreneur and you're working for yourself and by yourself, there's all kinds of talent that's available out there from a virtual assistant perspective. They can be international you know, we're we're communicating uh, via the internet, geographically dispersed, you can do the same thing. Uh, So that way, you can offload some of those functions, or maybe one of those hats I talked about earlier, and and let it go into the expert zone of somebody else. Uh, So that way, you can stay focused on the proper revenue drive that you establish for yourself.
1: You know, as you were talking, I had a big light bulb moment. And I think, Focusing on what you are good at, it makes so much sense. A lot of people, when they're trying to scale up or level up, they try to push all the balls uphill at once themselves. But the truth is, a lot of the time, the balls that you're best at, where you have a zone of genius, you're in a a comfort zone. And if you want to level up, you're gonna need to find a way to scale up where you're operating in your zone of genius. And this will almost always take you outside of your comfort zone. You're delegating on the one hand, that's taking you outside your comfort zone. But if communicating with people is your zone of genius, and you want to scale that up, you're gonna have to move from talking one-to-one to to groups to talking one-to-many, podcasting, YouTube, public speaking, writing books. These take people outside of their comfort zone, but it, it is their true zone of genius. And they're probably doing a lot of other things that are holding them back because they're easier emotionally. They're, they're not challenging us. They don't take us outside that comfort zone. But yeah, the moment you really double down on what you're absolutely best at, things will accelerate. That's certainly what I found. And yeah, it's a really nice insight.
0: No, it's, it's a great pickup. Um, and there's a lot there to unpack for sure. But you, you hit on something from a comfort zone perspective. You know, We did some work with uh, Jason Van Camp. Jason runs an organization called Mission Six Zero. They're based out of Utah. Jason is a U.S. Army West Point uh, cadet graduate. Joined the uh, obviously the Army and the Special Forces. Was a decorated Green Beret, and and he wrote a book that's brilliant. It's called The Deliberate Discomfort, and the the focus of it is, and it's written by Jason, but it's also written by really some heroes that are out there from a U.S. military perspective who've gone through these tremendously uncomfortable situations and, and fortunately they lived through them to be able to write down what their experiences were. But most importantly the, and the best part of this book is that the leadership lessons from deliberate discomfort are on full display from an outcome perspective. You, know, you don't have to get into a Humvee that runs over a mine, blows it up, and into a creek that's next to the road and be trapped and pinned underwater where you essentially lose consciousness because you're drowning. You don't have to, as a leader, you, from the comfort of your home, you can read the book and understand and feel those same types of emotions. Uh, But then you can also have some takeaway lessons from it. And typically the leadership lessons help you get into that uncomfortable zone so that way growth can occur. Because, you know, it's kind of like in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is one big desert reclamation project. When When the economy is great in the states and specifically in Nevada and Las Vegas, We claim more desert. There's plenty of it to go around, right? But it is one of those things where, you know, because there's no borders geographically by water, for example, or mountains typically, we can just go out and we can access additional desert, conquest it, and put up housing developments, right? It's a very similar type of methodology in deliberate discomfort where the more uncomfortable you can put yourself into from a situation... The greater your comfort will be the next time you approach it. What wasn't comfortable yesterday is now comfortable today. And you can just like that Las Vegas desert expansion, you can just continue to conquest different territory. Uh, and so you also hit on something that's interesting, and that is, you know, these like the soap person who has this really nice $21 million business. You know, in a in a venture capital or a private equity space, everybody wants to focus on the unicorn. Everyone wants to focus on the billion-dollar operation. Uh, We don't (laughs) because my mentality is that, call it a lifestyle business, but call it a success business. If somebody who creates a business that's somewhere between 10 and $20 million has a gross profit of 33%, those are really great businesses, and those are the types of businesses that afford really great lifestyles. You, I would argue that some of them at that dollar and those the way the numbers fall out, Bob, those can be legacy wealth generation or leave behind businesses. And so I, I get it. It's not as sexy. Soap probably is not as sexy as a tech SaaS firm. I get it. You get it too. But don't think for a second that you can't be as successful in running those types of smaller operations as well.
1: I think that's absolutely true. I know a lot of people who run, I know one guy who runs a business, he employs three people. It's a purely online business, training business. He works two days a week. He's personally taking home 40 grand a month and that's pounds sterling. So if he were to work in, that there isn't a job on the planet that would pay him that unless he were working at, at, yeah, at a very high level but he would have to be working very hard for that money so that's the thing you say a lifestyle business but the lifestyle you can achieve through a micro business can be actually significantly better than the lifestyle you can achieve through traditional routes so it really is a case of judging apples for apples I think a lot of people especially I guess I've I spent a little bit of time working in the incubator space and you meet people who have the opinion that lifestyle business is almost a dirty word but sometimes the answer is well what a lifestyle and it's important to remember yeah no
0: doubt i, I it's a great point you know we we participate with a lot of university incubators you know accelerators as well in different geographic locations you know i, I still participate in angel group meetings and, and typically there is the discounting if the entrepreneurial initiative, <clears throat> excuse me, can achieve that billion dollar plus type of an exit. And the reality is there's gonna be a handful of those types of organizations annually. Um, and there's also the danger of being first in market. You know, typically, you know, people don't necessarily need to be the innovative genius to come up with something. Uh, they just need to figure out what might be broken in the system that they're attempting to operate in based on the providers of the services or products that currently exist there. And they can build a really nice business around that.
1: I'm going to sort of jump into your space a little bit now. And I'm curious to hear from you. Let's say I've had a brilliant idea for a SaaS product, for example, and I want to go and speak to somebody about making it happen. What advice would you have, at what stage does somebody like you want to get involved? How do you normally participate with a business?
0: Yeah, so so we traditionally, we drew the line in the sand at the million dollar revenue, uh, primarily because, you know, we were in the early days, a tip of the spear, I love the entrepreneurial spirit. I love people who get excited. Everybody has the next best or the better mousetrap. And, and I love that mentality. Um, here's the issue though at less than a million dollar revenue they haven't had the market traction and it's not a proven product or service from my perspective it's an idea and you know the entrepreneurial journey with with newness sometimes goes from ideation to creation to launch pad to lift off those are the four stages that we typically see an organization go through And while it's simply an idea, it hasn't had that traction within market. And so that's where it is that we've drawn the line in the sand at a million dollars revenue. We typically find that organizations that are able to achieve that plateau, that revenue hill, that they have achieved traction within market. And there is something there that it then becomes, okay, great. How do we go from one million to five million? And, and what is it that we can do to deploy from our perspective to help them get there. We're a really good firm when it comes to, our focus has always been around the sales biz dev arena, which kind of swims upstream then into the marketing channel, but also swims downstream to the operations from a fulfillment perspective of the product or service, as well as the customer experience or customer service type departments. So. So we, that's our primary focus on when working with entrepreneurs, how is it that we can help? We're, we're going to look at their sales business development because I'm a firm believer that nothing happens unless you sell something. You can have the greatest idea, you can have the, the best creative moment where you've designed it and it is simply brilliant but it is one of those things where if the market doesn't want it and if you can't sell it, uh, you're, you're not going to achieve success.
1: Yeah. I think it's a lot of people, they do get romanticized and romanced into their own product ideas. And sometimes they are just terrible ideas and people still invest in them, which is just blows my mind. I, I have an idea. I have a, a uh, case in point in mind, but I'll get sued, so I'm gonna self-censor at this point.
0: Um. <laughs> no, I think it, I think it's one of those differentiations between um, passion or profit, right? And and I typically will work with some entrepreneurs who have that entrepreneurial spirit that I love, but they're doing the things that sabotage themselves towards achieving greater revenue because they look at they look at business. We had it here's a great example. We were looking at a firm to merge with. They it was a digital ad agency. And the the co-CEO of the digital ad agency, the gentleman that we were going to merge with, he said, "Look, Sam, we we're revenue heavy type of a focus organization. We look at it from if we're going to do projects, these are the thresholds that we'd look to achieve." per project on an annual retainer basis. This is the revenue that we look to drive. But we also look at the business as there are gonna be some things that we wanna do from a passion play perspective. They're not gonna achieve those revenue targets either on a project or a retainer type basis, but we wanna do them because we find that those are the things that we love doing. Those are the things that make us fulfilled. And I think that's really great. I I really like that mentality it's not a good business model because there's no revenue in it but it is one of those things where you know the trick becomes how do you make certain that the activities that you're focused on turn from passion to profit if you can't make that leap if you can't jump that chasm because it's close if it's too gigantic between passion and profit of a difference you probably shouldn't do it. And you know you shouldn't do it. So it's one of those situations. The, by the way, the, the M&A, the play, the merge with this digital ad agency, it fell apart. It fell apart because we just couldn't agree to, look, we're, we're going to either be an organization that drives towards revenue because we've got, we've got those profit moments. Or you're going to continue to run the organization in a passion direction. Which is, in essence, when we looked at it, you know, you've seen a revenue chart that's hockey stick graph. uh, There's almost bend this downward in a similar opposite direction because they were passion pursuit uh, oriented instead of profit pursuit oriented.
1: Yeah, I think different people are motivated by very different things. This is one of the things when you're looking at, for example, in my space, when you're looking at a niche which niche is going to motivate you is it, are you niching because this for commercial reasons and if you are niche into a space that has a lot of revenue in it or are you niching for impact in which case who do you want to impact the most or are you niching for passion? and usually it's a bit of a blend but and everybody's different but yeah I think when you're looking at partnering, partnering is such a dangerous thing and one of the things that I often heard, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this. One of the things the accelerators and the incubators often say is you should have two people as founders in a business. Personally, I think that's almost a recipe for disaster because it needs this sort of single point of focus leadership in order to propel an organization. If you feel you need two people to do that, then you're going to give each other excuses as much as you motivate each other. but. You, you operate in this space. What is the philosophy behind that? Behind that? Is it a philosophy you share?
0: You know, I, I think that if you have two founders, then there can be a really great yin or yang or play off of each other's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, when, when two folks combine into one, I think that there's some great synergies that can be derived and the organization can actually drive further faster. You know, I think that there comes a time though where you know, sometimes as a solopreneur, you need help. We talked about that earlier. Yeah. Joining forces with another leader, as long as you have and are on the same page from a focus, and this is driving towards where we're going. Um, as long as there's agreement with that, and great delineation of roles and responsibilities. You know, we had a we had a meeting yesterday with some clients that. We think that we found another opportunity for them in their business, but also for us to join forces with them. And so kind of in a crawl, walk, run mentality, we're looking to explore how is it that we can, here's what we think the opportunity is. How is it that we can combine forces so that we can, we can conquest this new area that they're not focused on. We like the market. We want to get into it. It certainly is a, a complementary role and responsibility differentiation or delineation of those roles and responsibilities, where upfront we would handle sales biz dev initiative, they would handle fulfillment, and we'd join forces for product or service delivery. It's, it works out really well. And so that's a really great example of how it is It as two firms coming together, that you can have that type of a yin and a yang relationship, if that makes sense, Bob
1: it does it makes perfect sense so as as we come towards the close of our conversation i want to ask you this question and it's you've written books you are a regular content creator you are sort of a a guest lecturer in university you have your own um, sort of legacy area of your business in the javelin institute a lot of people in the VC space might look at what you're doing and say, he's doing an awful lot of things he doesn't have to do. A lot of people would just sit there with a big bag of money. They'd look for investment opportunities and they would operate very quietly. Whereas you're taking the approach. I want to be known. I want to be visible. You're here on a podcast. So this obviously matters to you. So I'm curious to hear from you. How would you articulate why you do that?
0: Yeah, I, when, I think when, I mentioned when
1: potentially you don't have to do it. Sure.
0: No, I, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, you know I I'm a sharer by nature. I, I love to give back. When the reason why I started teaching at the collegiate level was because when I look back, I went to night school. Um, you know, I I had to work my way through college, and. The professors that came in were professionals in the community at night school. So they worked during the day just like I did, and then we all joined forces at nighttime and, and had courses together. And I always said that, you know, there's gonna come a day where I'm gonna do that. I wanna give back. Uh, it, it helped me out as a student because it brought a dry textbook to life with real world examples. And, and that was my goal. That's also the goal that I have over at the Javelin Institute. You know, as a 501c3 nonprofit, the IRS states that you can claim that nonprofit status by offering education. But I wanted to go a step further than that and and to work with leaders or make certain that a portion of the proceeds therein are provided with two leaders who experience family hardship. And in my mind, Bob, family hardship comes down to four Ds death, disease, divorce, or drug utilization. And so that's kind of the mission at the Javelin Institute. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my passion play. Now, keep in mind, I mentioned earlier, and I'm not hypocritical. I'm not talking out of both sides of my mind. The model for the nonprofit is based off of one of the largest executive education firms here in the US. It's about $140 million a year annual revenue driver. I figure, you know what, if we can break off a portion of that and and reach an audience with our methodology of how it is that we can take people and make them better leaders, all the better for it. Uh, But it is one of those things where the passion play for me is helping leaders who experience family hardship. I want them to be the recipients at a certain degree towards the activities that we have going on at the Institute.
1: So for those people listening thinking, Sam has shone a light in some places I would really like to go because that's that, that's how it's been for me light being shone in all kinds of areas I would never normally look and I think that's always a great place for development but if anybody's listening thinking I want a bit more of Sam I want a bit more I want to spend time on the tip of the spear what action would you like them to take
0: yeah so we've got a couple of things I'm certain we can put it in the show notes So our consultancy is based on business transformation. Uh, Whether you're a large Fortune 500 company or a solopreneur, we put together a 37-page, 128-question business transformation self-assessment workbook. You can work through it at your own pace. We really created it as a DIY, do-it-yourself type of methodology. We typically have folks that'll do that and then they'll outreach to us and ask us how is it that we can either do it with them or do it in a partnership with them. So so that'll be a resource that we'll make available. We'll also make available in the show notes uh, at the Javelin Institute. We have a program called the Best Leader in Thirty Days. It's a thirty day, uh, two minute exercise per morning, on the on the map or a calendar page of thirty days. Where you can significantly improve your abilities as a leader Uh, i'll provide that link as well also at the institute on a month in month out basis 10 out of 12 months we offer a series of webinars that are complimentary and then a workshop if you want to take it a step further Uh, we offer those 10 out of 12 months of the year we'll provide that in the show notes as well bob
1: that is an awful lot of value right there, and I guess if people want to connect with you, which is your favorite social media platform? Where do you like connecting best?
0: Yeah, so uh, LinkedIn is my best. We'll include my profile and access to connect with me directly there. Send me an email or an inmail there, and and we'll connect on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's my favorite. On Twitter generally the posts that are from me go figure 100 italian guy posts in italian <laughs> uh, so that's probably unless you've got google translate probably not the best space but we'll post there periodically as well. all right
1: sam palazzolo have i said that correctly
0: yes that's correct
1: you have been an awesome guest i'm really grateful for your time so much insight so many places i would never normally go and that's always the beginning of adventure so thank you so much for your time you have been an awesome guest oh And what's one thing you do now that you wish had started five years ago? (laughs) I nearly forgot.
0: No, that's okay. I I think it's one of those, it's a great capstone question, so we'll wrap up with it. I think we made the determination about five, you know, really when I started Tip of the Spear Ventures that we were going to do two things. We were going to work on projects that we wanted to work on, and we were going to work on those projects with people that we wanted to work on them with. And so when we looked at putting the band back together, so to speak, at Tip of the Spear Ventures after my tech startup initiative, you know, we knew kind of the people that we wanted to surround ourselves with as well as these are the projects that are of interest to us. Um, The people, from my perspective, it's the primary. You know, my mother always said that, you know, if you tell me about who your friends are, I'll tell you everything I need to know about you. Hmm. My friend's mother took that a step further because she was a librarian. She said, not only tell me the people you're hanging out with, but tell me the books that you're reading. And for me, the people aspect comes down to who is it that I know, who is it that I love, who is it that I trust, and who is it that I respect? If I know, love, trust, and respect people, boy, my world gets easier from not only a business, but a a personal perspective. Uh, but that, that's the lesson that when you can make that determination your life will become so much better, so much easier uh, what are the projects you want to work on and who is it that you want to work on those projects with
1: that is an awesome answer, it's all about connection Sam Palazzolo, thank you so much for your time, thank you Bob before I go, just a quick reminder to subscribe and join our Facebook group, you'll find a link in the show notes or visit amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders. Also connect with me wherever you hang out. You'll find me on all the social platforms at Bob Gentle. If you enjoyed the show, then I would love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would make my day. And if you shared the show with a friend, you would literally make my golden list. My name's Bob Gentle. Thanks to you for listening. And I'll see you next week.